Welcome to The Climate Imaginary, a below-the-radar series. As we navigate our future within the ongoing climate emergency, we seek different frameworks to help guide our learning and our actions. In this series, we bring together guests from across artistic and academic disciplines to speak about their approaches in working in solidarity amidst the climate crisis. We feature conversations that range from the unique power of creative works to mobilize people, to the importance of collaboration and interdependence across fields. Hello listeners, I'm Sam with Below the Radar, a knowledge democracy podcast. Below the Radar is recorded on the territories of the Musqueam, Squamish and Tsleil-Waututh peoples. On this episode of our Below the Radar series, The Climate Imaginary, our host Am Johal is joined by Stephen Collis, a writer and professor in the English department at Simon Fraser University. This episode is a special live event recording from SFU School for the Contemporary Arts 2022 Reorientation Day on September 8th. The Reorientation Day opened the school semester with events, discussions, and performances centered around the theme of climate change and contemporary art. Am and Stephen discuss the relationship between art and environmental activism, as well as some of the collaborative artistic efforts Stephen is involved with. Stephen also reads several of his poems throughout. Enjoy the episode. Welcome back. My name is Am Johal. I work here at SFU in community engagement. We've been running a podcast for the past three and a half years or so that comes out weekly as a number of students from School for Temporary Arts who work on it on a, on a weekly basis and really um, delighted to be uh, involved in the reorientation day today and lucky to have our guest with us, Steve Collis. I'm going to introduce him a little bit, but then I'm going to ask him to introduce himself a little bit uh, further. Uh, Steve's the author of a dozen books of poetry and prose, including The Commons in 2008, the BC Book Prize winning on the material in 2010, Once in Blockadia in 2016, and a number of other books. He's a professor in the English department here. Steve was also um, in the news quite a bit during environmental activism that was happening on the campus, particularly related to Burnaby Mountain, where he was also um, arrested. Uh, Welcome, Steve. Hi. I wonder if we can uh, begin with you introducing yourself a little bit. There's, of course, the paper bios and paragraphs, but I always like to ask that as the first question. Good. Hi, everybody. I, I wasn't arrested. I, I was. I was only. I was sued, <laughs> which in some ways was worse and probably better. But uh, yeah. Well, I, I was born on uh, Saanich territory in Victoria. Grew up there. Uh, I actually went to um, Camosun College and did about a year of, of like they, they have a wonderful. They had a wonderful. I don't know what, what's there now? Um, year long foundations course, or arts foundation course, which I loved. I went back and did it a second time <laughs> once I'd, I'd moved on to UVic, but I still took this foundation course at UVic. Even after two years, still didn't really realize I wasn't really an artist. But just as a writer, I've always sort of borrowed things from art practice. And I, I'd, I'd learned really quickly what I wanted to write in was uh, like an artist sketchbook. I didn't want lines. Lines are horrible, I think, if you're a writer. And, uh, and I mean, I draw too, and I'm, I'm as shitty a drawer as I was 30 years ago. But that idea of having like a daily practice where you, you had a book, you kept everything you were doing, working out all your ideas in, is, it stuck with me from, from those days. Um, I eventually went to SFU and, and have taught there since 2000. I live on Tawasan territory out near the ferries and mainly work on the Burnaby campus these days. Yeah, and I teach English and I write books of poetry, mostly. 
Is that good? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> you know, the, the day today is about contemporary art and climate change, and there's lots of climate change conversations that go on in the university and various disciplines, but also kind of the urgency of political action and community organizing. Uh, myself, I've worked in politics, have done community um, organizing, and there's certain uh, methods and ways of working. But this question of what does contemporary art and its different disciplines have to say about climate change, I think, is a really um, interesting um, question. Uh, when I was working on my own dissertation around um, climate change, it partly came out of the depression and exhaustions of working on various forms of uh, organizing or politics in a way that were um, bringing back diminishing returns. And I'm wondering uh, for you, who's been involved directly with um, activism, but also as a, as a writer and a poet, how you consider these questions, uh, but also, you know, there are probably times in your life where you're more intensely involved in organizing than writing and how that played out for you in, in different times of your life and how you think about it now. Sure. And I, and I can, I guess I can do a little bit of a trajectory maybe with that, but you know, I think at the moment I started writing and making art in some way was also a moment in which I was worried about things or interested in things around the world and thought, got to do something. So in the late eighties on Vancouver Island, a lot of stuff around old growth forests and people had just discovered a place called the Carmana Valley, Walbrand, Carmana Walbrand Valley, and that there were big trees there. And so I got involved with a group that was building trails so people could access it and actually go see what was there. And then that led into just sort of campaigning to, to try and preserve that. But what I found myself doing immediately was like, like probably the first poems I'm writing are poems saying, don't cut down trees. <laughs> and that I'm like making like little posters of with like doodles and proclamations and poems on them and going around and I'm sticking them on lampposts and things like that. So I think that conjunction of, of some kind of art making and, and, and feeling connected or feeling you need to engage with something that was going on in the world that troubled you, a world worried you, those things came together to me, like, like they originate together as it were. So I never thought of, it was never like, oh, I'm, I'm making art and oh, now I'm worried about this political thing. Maybe I should apply my art to that or, or the other way around. They just sort of work together. And as time has gone on, I think, uh, as time has gone on, I think other things I've done in my life, like, oh, I don't know, getting a graduate degree and teaching at a university to sort of fit into that same process or practice. Like I, I've, I've always not sort of made distinctions. That sketchbook is a good metaphor of that again. I mean, I might draft notes toward a, you know, academic essay I'm writing or, or it might be notes toward, a, oh, I've got to write a press release for this group I'm actually organizing in a campaign with politically or a poem or whatever. It's all going into the same place. And I try and think of it all as the same kind of work and, and, and try not to make separations as much as I can. Probably, probably don't, I haven't done my academic career really good that way, maybe good, good service, but that's okay. I don't, I don't, I don't care too much about that. It's just a good job. From early on, I, I, I'm sure idealistically and as a young person, I thought, oh, I, I, this art making I'm doing, this, this writing will, will help save trees or <laughs> change the world. And then over time, you get a little more experience. And I started thinking, really, it's got nothing to do with it at all, the, the, the writing necessarily. At some point, you've got to put the writing down and stack chairs or, you know, help carry things or be a body in the street and hold a sign or, you know, help elders onto a stage and off again or whatever the, the work might be that the writing doesn't seem to have any kind of it's not got a privileged position in that kind of work. Yeah, you know, you're, you're as, as a writer in a any kind of social movement or social justice phenomenon, a writer has, I think, no more important uh, a role than the person who's really good at making stew and has the wherewithal to produce a massive pot of stew and go, look, everybody, I made this 
vegans do for the for the meeting we're having like great uh, i wrote a poem but um you know neither is really that much more important than the other i've i, I thought and now i think that, that, that this this side of where i'm now I, i'm much more interested in the kind of dialectical relationship i guess between what you might do individually in my case with words and what activities i might be engaged with with other people you know, out in the world uh and 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 how they sort of feed one into the other uh, without feeling like, oh, no, this one's more important. I've got to go over here. Oh, no, no, that one's more important. I better go over there. Am I answering any kind of question? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, <laughs> I'm not you know, so sure. Uh, there, there's uh, so many environmental organizations that I'm on the list of. I'm sure many of you in the room are as well. You know, David Suzuki Foundation, Dogwood. It's all organizations doing great work. I donate money to them. I receive their email blasts in the in the, in the the inbox. And there's something, um, you know, they tell you what to do. They tell you what's wrong. They tell you when you ought to be outraged. And there's something about it that um, gives you something very practical to do. But at the same time, there's something about it that's kind of disempowering in the sense that the, the conversations already happened, the decisions already made in terms of what's of importance. And um, in some sense, there's uh, limitations of that form of as important as it is. It's the only way. It's not the only way of working. And we're all uh, people with different um, stories, different ways of interacting in the world. And if we're talking about a big collective uh, problem of climate change, of climate emergency, we all have to see ourselves inside of what to do. And uh, that form of campaigning doesn't always do that. In some sense, whatever artistic practice might be, that there's other ways of opening up an imaginary or a way of working to interact with that, that question. And I'm wondering for you, at least in, ter in terms of your poetry and, and writing, what parts of it it's opened up for you that activism doesn't or can't do, or what kind of energy does it give you in terms of interacting with those questions in the world? You mean the writing, what, what the yeah. writing does for? Yeah. Um, I, 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 those things you described, I do those things too, and I, I, I find them kind of unsatisfactory. You know, kind of in a kind of frustrating way, like, oh, I guess I'll sign your petition. I mean, whereas I think working with communities has always felt a little more like you're actually accomplishing something, maybe. So I've tended to privilege when I've had the capacity to, to go to meetings and actively engage with the people who are working together on some sort of project over just, just donating or signing, even though I'm always donating and signing things as, as well. Oh, I mean, I, th I think... You know, if, if I'll, I'll use a metaphor, <laughs> if you see a nail sticking up out of a piece of wood and you look around, someone should tap that in. If you look at your art practice as, as a hammer, are you a hammer? That's probably not a good question to ask if your art practice. It's, it's probably not a hammer, but it's probably a great way for thinking about the relationship between all these things, between nails and boards and hammers and bodies that might swing hammers and this, this metaphor is getting way too elaborate. You're probably ultimately lost. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, where the wood and the nails came from, uh, you know, how the hammer was manufactured, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I think that's what art making is for. And so sometimes I think, I mean, I, I, I personally, I think other people too need that kind of theoretical layer or, or atmosphere around the things we're doing. Uh, and, and I think that's what art is great for is thinking through those uh, relationships ultimately between the things in the world, you being a thing, the things out there, communities, uh, rainforests, climates, all, all these, these um, things were, were entangled and embedded in. I, I think having an art practice, whatever it is, is a great way for, for thinking through those relationships. 
Whether it's sometimes a good tool to grab a hold of, I'm not sure. But nonetheless, we seem to expect and want it to be a part of this. So if you're sitting down to like organize a political event or something, we're going to have a rally and we need speakers and we need this person to do this person that. Inevitably, the one, this seems in my experience, they, you want some cultural aspect of that. You know, who's going to uh, sing a song or read a poem or these kind of things that start on people's minds or how we go about this. Even at, even at meetings I've been at, you know, would you please read a poem in order to... So we, we want that other layer or that other atmosphere involved in what we're doing. And I think, again, if you, if you, if you go to your art practice thing, are you the tool I need right now? Probably the wrong way to go about it. But nonetheless, it's, it comes up, you know, and then you get asked to, to sort of engage with it that way. And, and I, I've always appreciated that. Since you brought it up, would you be willing to read something? Sure, sure. And, and, and also just thinking through this, this, you know, I get asked to talk a lot about the relationship between art and activism, which can be frustrating in some ways like uh, can i talk about something else you know i've <laughs> talked a lot about that maybe i should talk about something different once but also i think it's a an, an, an never-ending problem like there's no simple solution to what that relationship is or is about but the poem i'm going to read comes out of 2014 and stuff happening on burnaby mountain uh, at least i was reading it a lot then and it actually actually the instigation for this poem is a talk that happened in this very theater uh Biffo Berardi. Remember when he was yeah, here yeah. ages ago in, in this, when was it? 2014. Is that when he was here? Yeah. So I must have written that poem right around that time too. And uh, so he had a book out around then. He had a book out called The Uprising on, on Poetry and Finance. And as a poet, I looked at that title and went, finance, interesting. I've never thought of finance when I thought of poetry before. Uh, what's he got to say? And on the back of the book is just like a little quote in, in which I'm not going to remember exactly what that quote says, but it says something like, you know, poetry is going to save us from, from capitalism. So already I'm like, oh, okay, good, good. Keep going. <laughs> how's that, how's that going to happen? And, and he says something, well, I, the phrase I'll remember uh, is he says that because poetry returns us to the sensuous body of language. I thought, oh, that's, I like that phrase. I'm not sure, sure I believe him, but I like, I like the phrase. So that phrase is built into this poem repeatedly uh, amongst other things. Uh, and, and it kind of, the poem just wound up leading to a, a, a sort of a statement, a poetics, I guess, a statement about art and activism ultimately. So maybe it's a good one to read. Come the revolution. We will the revolution. We will return to the revolution, return to the sensuous body of language. Come the revolution. We will return to the sensuous body and sound will propel us through the barricades of others, the revolution through the barricades of others and come as mere sparks will spark us come the revolution and we will the revolution come anew and irony will no longer bind us the sensuous body of language lift us fringe to feather to fold us the sensuous body of our methods single togetherness and come the revolution we will have time the revolutionary time to live the silent lives of animals the revolutionary animals we have lost that is animals we have killed the extinctions corrupt economies come the revolution throwing throwing off sparks and new economies and sound will propel us through the revolution sensuous the animals we are sensuous as climates as producers and consumers as time and sound and the sensuous body of language will come the revolution when banks will have shaken banks shaken to shivers shivers come the revolution all fossils fuel for their own revolution will come and walking as sound through sensuous bodies form we will walk through an endless 
park sends to us a park. We will walk from each of our abilities to each of our needs through sound, the revolution. Come, sends to us, come, stroll, come, the revolution. We will roll through birdsong and singular birches, the transformation of home and together the revolution. This ecos will echo the sensuous body I speak of as system, as living fabric. Come, together the revolution through this other's effulgence. So others, other species, climates come, the revolution. We will echo new limits. We will wrap self-governance in limits and species in webs, wrap the sensuous body in webs of human tongue and animal revolution, sensuous governance in bios and animal wrap sound all lifted to be level to small habitations and habits to be level as animals and sound and sensuous bodies, small hearths of animals own all, all of us animals not owning, joining, come the revolution. We will come to be animal, to be sound, sing the revolution. We will sing the swords out of song, sing swords into songs, songs through flowers, through fields, sing bees through these fields, sing carbon out of atmosphere, sing chemicals out of ocean, sing economies in capacities, even sing balance, sing home, sing sustainable, sing sustainable, come sound, sensuous body, sustainable, sing songs in the absence of oil and death in the oceans, unsustainable of tanks and guns and airstrikes, unsustainable of endless colonial occupations, unsustainable product, profit motive and equity investments, unsustainable. Sing, come the revolution. Sing a jubilee for all the revolutions. Sing, come hammer, come storm. The revolution will come and we will, as animals, as sensuous bodies, begin to be born. Come the revolution, shit will no longer be fucked up and bullshit. And that which is loving in our hands will touch that which is loving in each and every other's hands. And while reading this poem, still won't be the same as storming a bank, oil refinery, or parliament. You may yet be reading this poem to a room full of people with whom you will presently be storming a bank, oil refinery, or parliament. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks. I didn't used to have to have glasses on or, or good lighting to read that, but now I do. <laughs> Thank you so much. That was wonderful to listen to. Uh, again. So if I could just, you know, yeah, add on to that. So, so, you know, is the poem a revolution or any artwork? No, but context, right? Uh, what's the context in? I think really matters. It's also about performance, ultimately. It's a, you know, W.H. Auden, a famous English poet, once said, poetry makes nothing happen. And that, that gets brought up and quoted a lot when people say, oh, politics and art, well, po art doesn't make anything happen. Well, what's the, what's the point of it in a political context? But I love another critic, um, what is his name, Austin, J.L. Austin, something that, who published a book called How to Do Things with Words. And he, in which he writes about performativity and he's, you know, the famous examples are, you know, I now pronounce you husband and husband or, you know, I, um, you know, I hereby, you know, oh, long live the king since today the queen died. And so, you know, when these kind of vocalizations that supposedly uh, have legal real world impact, but just by their being performed. But I think uh, uh, art can do a lot in that kind of, uh, especially this is a lot of performance people probably hear um, in that performative sense. So I think it's really important what art can do. One of the questions I was going to ask you about just, you know, being embedded in social movements, being involved with communities in your own activism, it, to some degree, in some ways, you could think of it as a kind of collaborative process and being at a school where interdisciplinarity and collaboration is really emphasized, music, theater, visual art, dance, all of these things, the, the collaborative process takes on different forms depending on who you're working with, the kind of forms that it takes. And you've been involved in a number of collaborative projects, including the Refugee Tales project. But wondering if you can speak to how you approach collaboration, but also if you could speak specifically to the, the Refugee Tales project as well. 
Sure. Yeah, it's always collaborative. I'm, I'm, I'm kind of that. That's how I just I see that kind of work. Again, there's that. You know, if you're sitting alone in your studio or at a desk making something, are you? Are you? Is that political? Might become in the right context, but I, I do love working with communities. Maybe worth mentioning that probably the first one I felt really I got really involved with was around this building. <laughs> it's naming Gold Corp Center, which caught a lot of faculty and people at SFU off guard when this was suddenly announced in September 2010 that this new building for our art school we were getting was going to have that company's name on it. Um, I began organizing around that time with a group called Mining Justice Alliance. A lot of displaced Latin American people, people who, come, who came from countries in which Gold Corp, world's second largest gold mining company, was active in their communities, was not a friendly presence. In fact, you know, people whose relatives had died and whose uh, local environments had been destroyed by this company's activities. So th that was the first real kind of community. And what, what a beautiful community to, to be, be engaged with, with people from all over a variety of Latin American countries who are here in Vancouver. You know, Canada's host to, what is it, 75% of the world's mining industry are based in Canada, made them right here in Vancouver. Okay, there's, there's that. Um, you know, Occupy Vancouver came close on the heels of that. And the Olympics too, actually in 2010. And I think we probably were both at various rallies around that time. Um, and then Occupy Vancouver and the, the part of Occupy Vancouver I got re-involved with was called uh, we're like the, the Climate Justice Little Committee or something like that. And that, that stayed active for years, actually organizing around climate change and especially the Enbridge pipeline in those days. And then eventually, suddenly, lo and behold, uh, you started hearing about the Kinder Morgan pipeline coming at right through Burnaby Mountain where they're preparing to do that work right now. So I feel like I've, I've moved through a series of, of different separate communities. Uh, in 2015, I was invited to um, go to England to write a story in a, in a storytelling, walking project around immigration detention. So the UK um, has a practice of, of in, indefinite detention. Many countries, uh, everywhere in Europe, even the US, have a limit on how long you can actually arrest and hold on to someone under suspicion that that person's an illegal immigrant. Or I'll always do this around that word. You know, yeah, I think you can hold someone for maybe 90 days in the US and they've either got to let them out and stay or deport them. In the, US, in the UK, uh, sorry, in Europe, it's 28 days. In the UK, Canada, and Australia, there is no limit. You could hold someone under uh, immigration suspicions literally indefinitely with no recourse to the law. You just lock them up. It happens to people for months, for years. A lot of the people I know, it's you know, at least a decade of, of a life where you don't have any status, you can't work, and you get rearrested all the time and re-detained in, in a detention center, usually at an airport. There's a huge one at Gatwick Airport in, outside of London, where you think every day they're going to put me on a plane and send me back to the place I fled from where they were going to kill me for whatever reason. But, uh, and, and those reasons often do track back indirectly to climate change, actually, to crises spawned by long-time droughts in East Africa, Middle East, et cetera. So, so the, these are the most, some of the most vulnerable people on the whole planet. And there's a, a, you know, a couple hundred people only in Canada a year that wind up in that situation because we have an agreement with the U.S. where we tend to send people back to the U.S. If you're going to sneak into Canada... Most people do it across a border, a land, land border between us and the United States. Not too many people wander across the Arctic or, or row a boat to Canada. So what happens is because of an agreement we have, we send them all back to the United States. But in the UK, they get about 25,000 people a year are, are locked up in, in indefinite detention. So there's a project there to support these people, tell their stories because people don't tend to know about it. Uh, and the, the inspiration was uh, Chaucer's Canterbury Tales, this medieval poem about people on a pilgrimage together telling their, all, their life stories to each other. 
So we walk with these people for a week in England every year and we tell their life stories or increasingly they tell their own life story. That involves every night music, dance and poetry and stories being told in a different community town somewhere in England that we walk between. The wonderful thing about England is you can walk from town to town. It's harder to do here. Uh, so that started in 2015. I've just been going, I just got hooked. It was like, this was an amazing community. And I just go back every year, a couple times a year. And we continue to do this work together. It's got different aspects. Um, we, we, we do, um, we have online events, especially since the pandemic. I, I'm going there in a few weeks because I've co-written a report the government was doing their own sort of status report on immigration detention. It's going to be totally bogus. <laughs> and uh, so as a community, we did our own grassroots uh, report, relying on the reports of people with lived experience uh, of immigration detention. And we've produced our own report and it's online and we're actually going to Parliament in the UK in a couple of weeks to um, present it and talk about it there. Uh, I'm going to open it up to questions sure. and comments shortly. But before we do that, I was going to ask you to read... Uh one more piece, if you're, if you're willing. Sure. Um, why don't I read something shorter and uh, maybe more climate changey? So that's the theme, right? It's right there. So this is like a, a prose poem from my more rec most recent book, which is called which is called A History of the Theories of Rain, uh, and it's it's kind of a climate changey book, I guess, especially since it starts this way. So what will happen between this unusually rainless November? and an unspecified but nearing future, when it will have warmed however many degrees Celsius above this present stretching global mean, asking for a friend. I feel tense. Give me a tense, such as actions that will be completed before some other event in the future. Plot a line. A is the present to B, the future. And place the future perfect somewhere between those points, but we don't know what ontological status B has now is the problem. If we don't know where we are going, how will we know when we've gone too far? Hashtag capitalism. To make our future perfect, there must be a deadline we work toward. Now to then, the breach coming between, we choose, I choose you, I choose all of you, let's do this now and then. Say, we will have always been living in the future like this. Say, we will have always been pondering the course of history unfolding. Say, our descendants will have always been thinking. What were they thinking when thinking about us in all those thoughtful days to come? But the future is imperfect and tense. The deadlines will pass and still some will be dreaming states of continuity. I want to state some continuity. Look at the climate and say, my grammar did this to me my grammar, and my economy. Uh, Steve, if you could, uh, we're going to be going into a break, I think, after this, if I looked at schedule properly, if you could read one more before we... Sure, short poem. So in 2014, when I was sued and not arrested... So we had like three-day um, three trial in, in a, <laughs> this bizarre, alienating courtroom in the Vancouver um, law courts. It was actually built for the, the Air India, for a terrorist case. So it's got like bulletproof glass between the... What do you call it? The, not the audience. What are you in? A, anyway, the people sitting, listening and watching and the, the lawyers and the important people on the other side of the glass. So over the other side of the glass, there, the oil company's lawyers read poetry of mine and then analyzed it. <laughs> it's a very interesting moment. Um, and and the, one of the things that their lawyer said after reading this long quotation from me said that 
underneath the poetry or beneath the poetry is a description of how the barricade was made. All right. Beneath the poetry, the barricade. Beneath sandstorms, digital trading. Beneath ourselves, the ones we've been waiting for. Beneath our allies, manufactured enemies. Beneath casual parks, formal profits. Beneath the review process, other possible futures. Beneath resignation, new uplift. Beneath deals, betrayal. Beneath the singularity of owning, the multitude of needing. Beneath the human voice, the systemic response. Beneath government, real abstractions, beneath a trial and error, beneath graft assessments, the particularity of soils, beneath media, the feel of our hands, beneath the outflow of resources, the influx of commodities, beneath the right to exclude, the right not to be excluded, beneath the drill platform, the mountain, beneath litigants, lovers, beneath the bees, little rockets. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks, everybody. Below the Radar is a Knowledge Democracy podcast created by SFU's Van City Office of Community Engagement. Thanks for listening to our conversation with Stephen Collis. Head to the show notes to check out the poems and resources mentioned in the show. We release episodes every Tuesday, so subscribe to Below the Radar on your podcasting app of choice to make sure you never miss an episode. Thanks again for listening. Tune in next week for the second episode of The Climate Imaginary with guest Kendra Fanconi.